I'm always aiming for the customer not to know who I am, not looking and <laughs> get blamed to see who wrote this. Uh, that's the goal is to be, to be invisible infrastructure that always works. Hello, thanks for visiting Open Intel. I am Chris Norman, an open source evangelist here at Intel, and that unassuming soundbite was from Dan Williams, a Linux developer and chair of the Linux Foundation Technical Advisory Board. He and I chatted about the importance of reviewers, getting both hardware and software right, and key takeaways he has from his 17 years of commits. Enjoy! Welcome, Dan. Hi, Chris. Becoming a Linux kernel maintainer seems like an incredibly geeky role. <laughs> just, just, just how geeky are you? I, I, I'm pretty geeky, uh, geeky, but I'm also a, a dad, so I don't get to geek out as, uh, as much anymore. But um, I don't know if other people consider it geeky. But uh, my wife and I were competitive uh, Latin ballroom dancers. All right, and and, uh, and yeah, and. and went to various competitions around the country and so that was in, in in college all the uh all the ballroom dancing got people were uh were engineers so <laughs> they, did, they did ballroom dancing in their spare time so i think it's maybe it's a something for geeks <laughs> that sounds very mainstream though i mean what's what's, what's, what's the geekiest thing you've ever done <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean the uh the uh i guess i, I guess I, I watched the uh the new star wars when it came out the episode one like five times in the theater oh. back to back <laughs> Until I realized it wasn't a very good movie, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was I was very excited about the uh, having a new Star Wars. The, the one, I, I, th I think, yeah, I think we all were. I think we all were. <laughs> so we we often hear that people get into open source by seeing a problem and trying to fix it themselves, um, scratching an itch. Mm -hmm. uh, what itch did you scratch that got you down the path of becoming a Linux maintainer? Maintainer was just been doing it for a long time, but like the thing that got me into Linux in the first place was uh, I had a high school internship at a at an airbag plant. I was in I was in the IT department, and somebody pulled me over and said, "Hey, take a look at this," and he showed me Linux for the first time. I saw KDE for the first time, and he said, "And it's open source." I had no idea what what open source meant, but at but at, at that job we we had uh, we had storage servers, and they had these big expensive RAID cards. I'm like, I'd like to have that kind of setup at my at my house but i don't have money for a rate card and then i saw that uh, uh ingo molnar had posted patches for the 2.2 kernel to add software rate support and i'm like and uh, i was like i can i can take this code and just pull it off the internet and add it to my computer and i can have a, a rate array and it, it, I, I thought it was the coolest thing ever and i was pretty much hooked at that point like this is the power of like hey i can find code on the internet and if i wanted to i could i could change it and Add new capabilities to my system. Uh, I, was, I was hooked at that point. In your leadership role in the Linux kernel community, you've tried to dispel this notion that maintainers hold all the power, um, prestige, and influence. And you encourage people to explore roles as reviewers as well as maintainers and developers. Mm -hmm. uh, how is the demographic for kernel co contributors evolving? I do think that for people's career development, they they see maintainers making decisions and, and they see maintainers look like they're calling all the shots, but really the main service a, a maintainer does is, I call it janitorial, like you're there to keep your subsystem clean, keep it operating, 
and be a reviewer of Last Resort. But if you have a really healthy, really healthy subsystem, you're creating economies of people trading reviews to get their work in. So people are all self-interested in Linux. You want to take people's self-interest and divert that into them helping others. So it turns into a community. I think in the beginning, yeah, maintainers were kind of people that made these decisions, but now they're the people that are yeah, kind of more in the service role. Do you see a good mix between maintainers and reviewers and developers? In general, the Linux community always needs more more reviewers. Maintainers can't get can't get away from reviewing because they 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 they're in that last role. But increasingly, the the, the complexity and the number of submissions is uh, stressing the ability of the maintainer community to, to scale. So we always need more reviewers. But more importantly, we need companies that care about Linux to care about their employees doing reviews. Um, yes. It can't be the case that your company is just is just pushing features and hoping that the community will review review it for you. It's a, it, like I said before, it's, it's an economy. Like it's a, it's a give and take. And if you're always in take mode, it gets noticed. That's you know one of the challenges that we see a lot as the open source world is typically been viewed in the past as as a hobbyist role and has now moved to a more commercial ecosystem. Is, is that the biggest challenge you see? The hobbyist ethos stick around is because because hobbyists care, like they, they, they have a passion for it that, make, that makes them care and, and go deeper. The long-term health of Linux is, is keeping that spirit alive of people, of people caring, but also valuing the rigor of doing things right and the rigor of, of code review and, and that discipline. And I think the trick is educating people on the value for their long-term career and their long-term long-term influence to in, to in, invest in that. So this the kind of, this near near-term pain of doing the, of eating your vegetables and, and and doing code reviews actually pays off long-term in in your influence and your trust um, in the community because the uh, the entire thing operates based on trust. Will you will you be there um, if you make a mistake? It's more important than not making mistakes. And and how can we incentivize the company management structure to prioritize their developers to be able to do this work? It's it's a conversation. It's people demonstrating that that hey look, and this community this community decision was influenced because the community had so much trust in in me or another Intel employee as a member of the community. I do think Intel has has done a good job in that in in letting people. Wear the community hat proudly, while also wearing their wearing their Intel hat. And the times that we've lost sight of that, the the associated pain has has been there. But yeah, I think we're in a good place where right now I'm in a situation where my entire org, organization chain, all the way up to the CEO, understands open source. So that's that's just a place that I think a lot of people would be envious of to be to be in in, in terms of understanding things. But yeah, you have to uh, you still have to deal with parts of Intel that are still on their open source journey. Yeah, we, we've seen some great messages coming out from past from Pat Gelsinger and from Greg Lavender, and mm-hmm. all through our all through our management chain. So it's been, it's been a great place. The technical advisory board's role um, that you've been part of uh, is to provide the Linux kernel community a direct voice into the Linux Foundation's activities and foster bi-directional interaction with application developers and end users and Linux companies. What sort of advice have you been giving in your role on the technical advisory board? It's the, the, the advisory board is interesting because we 
we, we both say that we haven't we, that we don't have any real power like there's no we don't have we don't have a budget we don't uh, we can't hire or fire anybody but what we do have is the collective influence of the people that are members of the tab so so the, the power of the tab is the influence of its members and what I've done is just tried to bring whatever whatever influence I can to the problems that come before the tab we tend to get involved when things arise in the community that that, that need that kind of collective attention. Um, Can you give some examples? So we got involved with discussions about the code of conduct. Um, We got involved with the discussions around inclusive language and putting out statements that say, hey, look, here is a body that you elected community that is putting out a joint statement about these questions that have been raised in the community. And so it, it, it helps to have yeah have a body that is basically tasked with like hey keep keep an eye on the health of the community and and work on joint statements documents uh, advice when 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 the need arises yeah those are the big examples recently yeah okay uh, and how do you see your role changing as you take on the chairperson's role. I, I, get, I get to be the recorder in the meeting. Like, <laughs> it's, actually, it's like a, it's like it's like a, it's like the a person that writes the minutes takes it. Yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, like the 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 chair uh, or, or organizes the meetings. I think the, the the chair sets the tone of trying to keep the tab having productive conflict. If if if, if, if they need conflict at all, but keeping on task and making sure that all voices get heard. I have the benefit of having followed in the footsteps of tab chairs like Grant Likely, who is now, he's now CTO of Lenaro, Chris Mason, who is influential at, at Meta, but following in their footsteps of, of the style of, of just, just making, making sure everybody's heard and leaning on the principle of uh, doing what's be- doing what's what's best for the long-term health of, of the Linux, Linux kernel, which is something I've seen useful in my, in my career is, is just being able to lean on that when, whenever whenever problems arise if, if you can keep it technical or keep it on keep it on the on the project and not on the personalities things tend to uh, resolve basically a, a lot of listening and a lot of patience okay so as a tab chairperson you actually get to participate on the linux foundation board as well right Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I and I know you just attended your first Linux Foundation board meeting. <laughs> How did that I go? Did. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they had the board meeting in Tahoe and uh, and got to got to go and, uh, and 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 be there with other yes with other people that make up the tab. These are platinum members of the Linux Foundation and, and and other other people that have been elected to the board. And it's interesting to be the the kernel of a voice in the room and. It was also interesting to just see how the commonality of this open source community that kind of was proven in Linux and kind of proven with the project that Linus Torvald started, but like this kind of ethos has spread. And like, so even though there's lots of projects in the Linux Foundation, they all are all grounded in this, in the same kind of core belief about the power of open source and the power of the commons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it's just good to see that in action and good to see an organization that is dedicated to, keep, to making that thrive. What were your initial impressions from the from the board meeting? That the, the Linux Foundation means means what they say, that they are that they're that they're there to help, 
and 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 that they're 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 good stewards of open source and 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 and, and Linux as a as a way to run projects. Um, yeah, so yeah, it was it was it was it was encouraging to get to meet to get to meet Jim and Mike and the other uh, leaders um, of uh, of the LF and yeah, they they they've that'd, that'd be Jim Zemlin and Jim Zemlin and Mike uh, Dolan. They were nothing but uh, but open and and inviting and, and welcoming and saying yeah, like any, any questions you have or anything we think you can do better, just let us know and it felt authentic. We recently talked with Simon Phipps of the Open Source Initiative, uh, and he called out reputation vampires, people who take up a lot of space and suck the lifeblood out of organizations, basically people who want the status without doing the work. Do you see reputation vampires in open source communities in general? The only community I really participate in is is the kernel community. I can see that uh, behavior being a problem. Linux tends to not tolerate technical debt. And so if somebody was looking for the status without doing the work, they'd have a hard time in, in the kernel community because the proof is in the contributions. In, in the kernel community, like your ability to get work done is, is based on your reputation and preserving it. So maybe that's a reason that, that I don't perceive it as a problem in the kernel community is because it's kind of self, self-correcting that the more you don't actually deliver, the less influence you actually have. Right. And talking of contributions... I think many people would assume that the majority of the kernel work that you do is related to Intel CPU or hardware enabling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure there's much more to it than that. How else does your work benefit Intel customers? There's the the, the, the CPU enabling, and, and, and that's super important. And, and But my career has really been on the things that are downstream of the CPU, so st- storage adapters and or, um, or memory or these things that are not directly x86 uh, core technologies. But that's actually part of becoming a maintainer, becoming more influential in the, in the community is taking taking the feature that you would ask to enable and then going and finding out where where that feature actually stresses out the current kernel in, in the sense that if the kernel's not ready for your feature, that's an opportunity to go and go and improve the the these core APIs and this core infrastructure. It's actually something we call the we call the platform problem, where people just want to develop their little uh, their little feature on top of the existing APIs, and a successful person that's leaning towards maintainership, leaning towards higher levels of influence, is somebody that peeks below that and says, "Hey, you know, actually, this API is not good enough for the situation, and it needs to change here." So it's a lot, but but you ask you ask a question about for end customers, and. The sad or the happy part is, is that if, if I do my job right, you don't even know I, I did a job. Like the, <laughs> you, you, you buy the hardware, you turn it on, it works. Yep. If um, it's it's when it breaks that the customer notices like that's something that something that I didn't do my job right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm always I'm, I'm always aiming for the customer not to know who I am, not looking and <laughs> get blamed to see who wrote this. Uh, that's the goal is to be to be invisible infrastructure that always works. Yeah, you, you actually mentioned as we as you we were talking there about uh, your focus on the storage. You earned your stripes contributing to the kernel through your work on persistent memory enabling in the Linux file system. 
uh, and you've likened suggesting changes to the file system architecture as touching the third rail. The third rail, yeah. Yeah, you, you must have had to navigate minefields of known issues in your time of working on the kernel. Uh, are there any lessons you can share about uh, what could have been done differently? Um, well, I'm still here, so that means I didn't, <laughs> mess up too, I didn't mess up too badly. But in terms of like what can be done differently or for somebody who's encountering those problems and coming up, I would say that one thing that I'm con continuing to learn how to, how to do better is to understand where Linux is going and get ahead of where the hardware is going or and anticipate problems and influence inside the company to say, hey, let's talk about this because here's, here's this pain point in Linux that you're headed towards. A lot of times I've been fixing things that were, they're already baked, like the silicon's already shipping. We have, to, we have to fix it after the fact. Yeah, but but there are there are tactics and ways to get get the problem solved in Linux while also getting the silicon to be better going forward. So we'll, we'll do things like find a problem, uh, say, hey, upstream, we know that this this fix is unseemly or or not or we wish we'd done it differently, but we talked to the hardware team and they and they said okay. Gen the next generation forward will will do it differently, um, and get that commitment before before changing the Linux code, just so that the community sees that you're taking care of reducing their burdens long term, and so that's the takeaway I would have is 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 continue to to try to push that influence up upstream in the hardware development uh, direction as much as possible uh, before you get into these into these late fights when, uh, <laughs> when things aren't working upstream, upstream in Linux. Uh, I know you were recently at the Intel Innovation event uh, where Greg Lavender and Arun Gupta talked about the importance of open ecosystems to help accelerate developer innovation. With respect to the announcements made at that, at, at that event, which ideas resonated with you? The commitment to, to those this project was encouraging, but but of course, what <laughs> what, uh, what kind of blinded me or was really uh, inspiring was when Pat brought Linus on stage to give him the the uh, that was pretty the, awesome, wasn't it? Li yeah, li lifetime achievement award, mm -hmm. and and Linus has had some tough things to say about uh, about Intel, but when they were up there, like he was visibly touched to receive this award, and it was also interesting to see that. Open platforms, open, open documentation leads to these innovations. Like like Linus used Pat's book to do his first x86 port, and so I, I, I really appreciate Greg's uh, attention to open source and recognizing that getting people to develop on your platform is an exercise in them having the freedom and the opportunity to not develop on your platform to, to go somewhere else, but they choose to work with you because your, your platform performs the best with, with tools that they could certainly take somewhere else, but, but they, the community come back to you because you support the, you support the community and you support the, uh, the platform. I think it's a very healthy way to do technology development by not, <laughs> by not locking the doors behind people when they come into the room, like, no, like you can come and go freely, but you're going to, you're going to have the best experience here. Um, what are the greatest opportunities you see for improvements moving forward with the, with the developments in the next kernel? Socializing the idea that healthy upstream development includes healthy re healthy review, so that organizations not I mean not just Intel but like other organizations that contribute to the kernel prioritize that reputation building, that that knowledge building, 
for their engineers. And then, and then it's also engineers getting better at having those conversations about early and often about, Hey, this is where Linux is today. This is how much effort it's going to take to get these features going. Let's, let's have, let's have, let's have conversations about, about improving that because it's one thing to just shift left and start the, start the software early. You want to shift, you want to shift further in that and, and, and get the, get the hardware design right. And so that, so that things flow better, but yeah, but that, that's just a, an ongoing learning process. <laughs> All right. Do you have time to contribute to any open source projects for fun? Like what's that quote? Like if you do what you love, you'd never work a day in your life. Right. I do. I do find working on the kernel fun. Um, and, <laughs> and so, and so sometimes, sometimes I'll, I'll work on the kernel probably when I, sh- when I should it be like, uh, I work on it to relax or something. I'll, I'll clean, I'll clean up something to take my mind off. But it's pretty much uh same projects that I would be contributing, contributing to in my day job, but hard to step away. <laughs> should, should probably well, kind of focus more on stepping I, away sometimes. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you must have some hobbies. You mentioned ballroom dancing earlier. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Ball, ballroom dancing was, is, is a big one. We, we still actually teach uh, a ballroom dancing class sometimes to my daughter's daughter's uh, dance school. So oh, we, lovely. We, we still, we still, still keep up on it. What changes have you seen in the OS world uh, since when you first made your first commit and now? I think you mentioned you made your first commit November the 1st, November 17 years 1st. ago. Yeah, yeah. So you must have seen a lot of changes since then. We've gone from, especially on the especially on the device side of, of CPU, babysitting the device and asking it, hey, transfer this, transfer that. Um, and then we kind of went into this era, era of, okay, device, I'll, I'll program you and, and you send the data over here. So we, we, we had DMA and then we had this era of, okay, well, and, and now we're in the era of the, the, the same kind of era, but now we have like tons of DMA and we have tons of CPUs. But the next kind of evolution is kind of what I'm working on now, which is Compute Express Link. It basically says we can put memory anywhere. Uh, we don't, it doesn't have to be a directly, directly attached to the CPU. It can be attached across this uh, PCIe link. And they and they and they're going further to have that link go outside the box. So now you can have a big tray of memory at the top of your your rack. server rack, and mm-hmm. and things can plug into it. Um, it's actually one of the reasons I came back to Intel from Facebook. I actually went to Facebook in 2012, and one of the problems they were talking about is like, hey, we just really are having a problem with the fact that we. We buy CPUs every three years, uh, and then we and we're stuck with whatever the memory is there. And the, we want to we want to buy memory and CPUs on different cadence, but they come together. And they were coming up with these software solutions to try to they call it disaggregate things. But I'm like, this is this is not a software problem. This is, this is a harder problem. This is an Intel problem. This is an Intel scale problem. And and so I I saw the beginnings of that customer need when I was there, but it's really fun to actually build it out and see it see it happen and, and, and figure out uh, what Linux needs to make it to make it work being back at Intel. So this is the place to be for watching operating system change, at least from my perspective, is because we we change the the paradigm of what the what the operating system needs to deal with on a harder level. We announced the discontinuation of the Optane line. How, how did that impact you? It was sad. Um, like, I'm not going to lie. We had a lot of foundational work for persistent memory that was that was done by that but 
it turns out that that infrastructure is useful going forward. One of the technologies we developed was something called DAX, which is direct access. It's a it's a way to eliminate the buffer cache because you can just you don't need to cache anything in front of storage because your memory is storage. You just talk to it directly. People found use cases for that for virtual machines. Now you you can use DAX to eliminate a copy of the buffer cache in your in your hypervisor setup before we had one in the host and one in the guest. So so that gets deleted. Uh, the minute the Optane was discontinued, we saw some other uh, memory vendors say, "Oh, hey, by the way, we have we have persistent memory now." And we were kind of, <laughs> I guess, we were waiting until to see what happens with Optane before we announce. So, so pers- persistent memory is going to be a thing going forward. I'm sure somebody's going to make a CXL card with a large battery attached to it. So, the work and the infrastructure and the capabilities continue. The impact of Optane will continue in that, in that respect. And even though it's discontinued, like there's still there's, there's still going to be some uh, opt-in products and uh, some inventory that's, that's still going to be sold off. So we're, we're still going to see platforms with uh, with persistent memory in the near term. Uh, I think our time here is coming to a close. Uh, is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered? No, not really. Like uh, I really want to thank you for uh, for, the, for the opportunity to talk to talk through some of these issues and, and share uh, share my perspective. It's been, it's been a good talk. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dave.